0: Hello
1: everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Hope you've enjoyed the mini-series we had on secondary educational choices in Luxembourg, where we try to distinguish between the IB, the EB and A-levels. And then I must also thank the wonderful guests I had explaining so poignantly their journeys with rare disease in their families and what they do with their organisations to help. If you missed any of these or other conversations, they're all available, of course, in the back catalogue. And I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas or questions questions on any of these topics uh, that I can put to the guests forward on your behalf and try to get answers for a future episode. Now today we're going to tackle Eating disorders. It's a global issue, particularly in richer nations, and I'm joined by two experts in this field. Diana Reed is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, licensed to practice medical nutrition therapy in both the United States and Luxembourg. She founded The Global Dietitian, where she delivers personalised nutrition consultations, educational webinars and training for corporate clients and writes nutrition-focused articles. Diana helps clients dealing with a myriad number of health issues, such as diabetes, gastrointestinal disorders, celiac disease, irritable bowel syndrome, food allergies and intolerances, and a variety of other gut-related disorders. Claudia de Boer is a psychologist and psychotherapist specialising in eating disorders and anger-related disorders. She has her own practice in Beaver since 1997 and works with adolescents and adults with various issues such as PTSD, anxiety, psychosomatic symptoms, etc. And about 30-50% to of her clients have eating disorders. She uses her training in behavioural and client-centred therapy, gestalt therapy for younger people and also systemic therapy. Claudia is a lecturer on eating disorders and anger-related disorders on the Psychotherapy Master's Programme at the University of Luxembourg and has also published scientific books, papers on stress, anger and post-traumatic stress disorders. So welcome, ladies, to you both.
0: Thank you. It's great yes. to be here. Hello.
1: It's a, a real pleasure to have you both here and your expertise on this really important issue, which has touched many of us and our lives friends we know, family members, etc. So, I want to start with the very basic question
2: What is an eating disorder? Well, there are different kinds of eating disorders. We're talking today about special eating disorders, which are anorexia, nervosa, bulimia, nervosa, and binge eating disorder. I'll say something about the criteria, how they are classified, and I say the criteria of Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Diseases, which has been developed by the American Psychiatric Association. Well, the first criterion is that the food intake is so low that this leads to a significantly low weight. The weight is under a BMI of 17. BMI would be kilogram through the height of the patients, the square meters. And the second criterion would be that the patients are very afraid to get fat or to gain weight. And the third criterion would be something we call disturbance of the body image. That means the patients have got the feeling that they are either very fat or that they are just right at weight, which is very low. Mm -hmm. They show behaviors to get the weight even lower and they deny or really have got the feeling that they are fat and that they've got no disease. Mm -hmm. That would be anorexia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa are patients who show binge episodes at least once a week for at least three months. And this has been quite recent
1: in the history of diagnoses, only kind of became something we are aware of since the 80s.
2: Yeah, that's right. Before bulimia nervosa was not known as a disease, we've got not so much research The patients, they eat normally a big amount of food in a certain time, much more than other people would eat. They then show inappropriate behavior to reduce their weight or to prevent that the weight goes up, which would be, for example, vomiting. Another possibility is taking laxatives or other medication or moving a lot. So that would be part of bulimia nervosa. And uh, the self-esteem is very dependent on the weight. Mm -hmm. And the third group are binge eating. That's very recently a disorder that can be classified. These patients have binge episodes like bulimic patients, but they don't show this inappropriate behavior by vomiting or doing something else to reduce the weight.
1: Thank you so much for that very researched and thoughtful definition of these eating disorders. Diana, I want to turn to you because you both see these clients coming to you. Yes. At what point are they coming to you? Because as a parent, as a family member, we have to be the first port of call to notice these things. So what should we be doing to look for these symptoms? I imagine you're getting people when it's a little bit too far down the line.
0: You know, I would say um I I sometimes get individuals that have eating disorders that have been yes, are somewhat far down the line referred to me by by somebody like Claudia or another psychologist, but I will also tell you that I often screen for eating disorders when I have patients that seem to have a very uncomfortable relationship with their body, with food, with a long history of dieting. So that may be in older individuals. Um, I also will occasionally get an adolescent who seems to be having a lot of stomach distress. They're having reflux, they're having constipation, they're having bloating or perhaps they don't have their menstrual period. And so the parents have brought the adolescent to me to, to discuss fixing the gastrointestinal issues. And as we delve deeper and deeper, we find that the gastrointestinal issues aren't the primary issue. They're actually a result of an eating disorder. There's a lot of different ways they can present, but I did write down here for us just a little bit of the things that parents could look out for. Um, There are behavioral things to kind of watch out for. So if a child or adolescent seems to be really preoccupied with their weight, their body image, food, calories, or they're starting to say how carbohydrates or some other food group is evil, out of nowhere, they seem to become, want to become a vegetarian or a vegan, that might be a little bit of a red flag. Um, if you notice that they're maybe skipping meals or telling you they ate when you're pretty sure they didn't, um, those are some of the kind of behavioral things to, to watch out for. Um, frequent trips to the bathroom after a meal could be another sign of potentially purging. And then, of course, on the physical side, we would look at, you know, really rapid and noticeable weight loss or, in some cases, weight gain, depending on the the particular disorder. Stomach issues, as I said, a loss of a menstrual period in an adolescent is a, a, a huge sign of something that needs attention. Sleep problems, concentration difficulties, feeling kind of cold all the time, bundling up a lot even when the weather's quite warm. Those would be some of the things to kind of keep an eye on if you notice that your child's behavior or physical status has changed significantly in a relatively short amount of time
1: and what you've both said is that these don't stand in a vacuum it's not just an eating disorder but it's related to so many other thoughts in their heads or culture around them and so when a parent or a caregiver or a friend sees this happening What can they do to help that friend? And we're talking about, it's not an insignificant number. I've got some of the statistics here in front of me. Anorexia nervosa, it's just under 1% of female adolescents, uh, 0.7%, around 14 to 18. And the ratio of females to males is 9 to 1. Um, And then... You know, the mortality rate here as well is very significant, too. So these are really serious, potentially yeah. serious problems. It's
0: very frightening. And I think Claudia could attest to this as well, that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychological illness, especially in adolescence. So this is something that we don't want to let go or to let pass. It it may feel uncomfortable for parents to kind of push in on their, their, their child or their adolescent's life at a time when the adolescent is trying to become very independent. But the reality is the longer an eating disorder becomes entrenched, the harder it can be to really address and recover from. So most of the research indicates that the sooner an eating disorder can be addressed and treatment started, the more likely and more rapidly a full recovery can be made.
1: I guess I have to ask, what does soon mean?
0: (laughs) Well, I think soon probably means as soon as possible. I don't think there's any specific data, but if somebody has had an eating disorder that's been untreated for several years, that's going to be something that is going to take a significant period of time to to come back out of. I don't know. Claudia, what what would you say from your experience? Well, as soon as
2: possible. Uh, One problem I um, sometimes see is that the patients are not... At the point where they want to make therapy Mm -hmm. that's a big problem so uh, what is important in case that this happens either to make a family therapy Mm -hmm. or maybe as parents get counseling so that they can get ideas how they can deal with the whole situation. Because as you said, Diana, the
1: adolescent phase where this tends to start for the anorexia, particularly the bulimia is a little bit later um, in age group. That's the point at which the adolescent doesn't really want to listen to their parents. So even if the parent wants to help, their child may, their teen may not want to listen to their help, particularly their parents.
0: Absolutely. One of the things that Claudia mentioned a minute or so ago And I never pronounced this word right, (laughs) Anasognomia. We're going to cut that. I would have got problems too. (laughs) Yes, yes. I could. So So one of the other things that I think uh, is important to also realize is that there are neurological changes in the brain for somebody with an eating disorder. Some of those may be sort of pre-existing genetic pieces. Some of them may be triggered by dieting and the onset of the eating disorder, But it is often the case that the person affected by the eating disorder really does not believe that they are sick. They are not in denial. They are not, you know, trying to to fool their parents. They actively do not feel that they are ill. So, again, it's like that body dysmorphia that Claudia was talking about where what they see or feel to them is very real, but it is not representative of the reality or the gravity of the situation.
1: Claudia, in your experience, why is this happening? Where does it come from? I mean, in my ignorance, I guess I could think of cultural pressures on us. We see what's in the magazines, on social media all around us, the sort of model look, the epitome of what is meant to be beautiful, etc. But when it's starting in a young age, where do these trends happen? Why are people not enjoying food, understanding that food is something they need for their brains, for their personalities to develop, for their bodies to grow? And it can be incredibly dangerous to them if they don't nourish their bodies. Where is this coming from? Mm.
2: Well, there are different aspects which play a role. On the individual level, it is so that usually, like anorexics, when they are children, they are very easy children. They are good in school. They are good in their hobbies. And they try to adapt very much to the needs of other people. So the parents, usually, they don't have a lot of conflicts with them. But the problem is that they go over their own needs and they don't express them enough, also their feelings or what is important for them. And they do that for a very long time, but when they come into a puberty, this is not a behavior that's asked for because in puberty they are at the transition point where they have to get adults and the adults have to be able to show their own opinion and to have an identity. So it's also a problem of developing identity and they feel over demanded by this situation. So going into an anorexia or a bulimia and dealing all the time in the head with food and with weight helps not to deal with the other themes of life which are important. So that's one of the big reasons why the patients they get an anorexia nervosa it's kind of like trying to set limits and to show your own opinion and show your autonomy but on in a place where it's not very good Mm -hmm.
1: and a place where you can have full control
2: right where you can have full control they've got the feeling that they've got control and in puberty there's A lot of things where you have got not the control for the body. The body is developing in a way we have got no influence on. Uh, We have to get into more contact and different contact with our peers. We have kind of to get a little bit on distance to our parents. So there are new, new tools they need and they have not developed them in their childhood.
1: I'm curious that the other major part of your profession is dealing with anger-related disorders. Do you find the two overlap
2: in any way? Yes, in a special way. Uh, Anger is a theme which I work on with these patients, but usually they have not the problem that they show too much anger. Mm -hmm. They've got the problem that they don't show their anger. Mm -hmm. They've got Uh, problems to express their anger and they often express as overacting out with eating disorder behaviors. So that's one aspect which is really important. Um,
0: Trauma would be another big one right Claudia? Having experienced some sort of of previous trauma? Some of them. I would not say
2: that everyone is but but especially bulimic patients uh, some of them I have have no number in my head, but it's not so little. Uh, have got traumatic uh, experiences and also of anorexic or binge eating disorder.
1: Yeah, so exactly. And when we think about the the whole plethora of eating disorders out there let's move now a little bit to binge eating which affects again it's not an insignificant number the statistics I have from you thank you for these mm. statistics three percent of the adult population beginning between ages of 20 to 30 and now there's more of a parity between males and females it's uh, three females to two males it can first show at a much earlier age 11 to 13 but three percent of of the adult population is, it, it's it's really quite a number.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what I see from kind of a nutritional perspective, although it certainly overlaps with Claudia, is that when it comes to binge eating, it is often related to a lack of coping mechanisms. So what we might say about a lot of these (laughs) nutritional issues is they're not really about the food, Um, but the food is something that is being used as a way to either provide comfort, to provide solace, um, to provide acceptance, or in some cases, it's a way of of sort of stuffing down really hard feelings. Um, And so I think that is a fairly common feeling across children, adolescents, all the way through adulthood. So my impression of that increasing in numbers is because of, you know, continual added stress in our society, as well as people feeling very limited in in how they can approach or cope with some of those things. So I guess what I would want to say just in summary on this particular point is eating disorders really serve a purpose. Sometimes we feel, you know, concerned that, you know, it's a child acting out or, yes, maybe it's a result of trauma, which those can, you know, a child needing attention, those can be pieces of it. But ultimately, I think if we look at it in a way of the eating disorder is providing something for that person, that they're not able to handle other changes in their life, other stressors, other relationships. So once we can kind of figure out, that particular piece, then we can start to unravel them,
1: and we'll talk uh, just a little down the line about how to unravel that and some coping mechanisms for the caregivers and from the professional side as well. But I just wanted to kind of open up the platform of eating disorders to include the other side. It's not just about not eating; it can be the reverse as well. It's about overeating, which leads to obesity, which is the opposite problem, which I'm sure you've seen in your practices as well. And then we. Have the whole spectrum of something they they call, uh, if I can just find my piece of paper, uh, those, those, uh, oh yes, Ednos and Fed, the eating disorder not otherwise specified or other more specifically described eating disorders, because actually most eating disorders don't fall neatly into one categorization. And just in my life experience, I certainly have examples that I can think of where, well, I think it's actually incredibly common, where women think very deeply about what they eat or what they do not eat. And I'm sure restrictive eating comes into this whole genre of eating disorders, not otherwise specified. So if you could just talk to us a little bit about that much bigger group and how people move into adulthood from perhaps the first patter of that problem in adolescence, where they, they maintain that problem with eating into adulthood and how they can recognize it and learn to deal with it in a healthy way.
0: I could talk about this one for hours, but... <laughs> I, I would say that, um, again, a lot of this isn't necessarily related to just the food. It can be related to psychological issues of self-esteem, lack of confidence in oneself. And then you surround that with a parental um, or family environment where if a child has a parent who has also dieted and has body image struggles mental health struggles they may be more likely to sort of absorb that and then you surround that with peers and social media and in general media and i think it is very very challenging for individuals to know that they aren't just a body especially for young girls everything is really sort of focused on what somebody looks like versus their you know academic credentials their skills in the arts or you know their personality or their their deep relationships in the media it has really come down to the most important thing especially for women is that you look appropriate so I think for me that's one of the areas I dwell on a lot with people because it's really hard to pull themselves back out of This idea that there's only one right way to have a body and that the body is the most important thing. And then a lot of those behaviors just pile on after after that, trying to have control of of this body.
1: There's a whole spectrum of eating disorders. And within that, many people moving into adulthood find it tricky to have a healthy relationship with eating. Mm -hmm. So into that category, another one I would put are the fitness fanatics, where they are working out in extremis to override their calorific intake per day. There are the people who have the very regular fasting because it's something that's, yes, I know that there is evidence to show that fasting is good for longevity, but it has to be balanced with, you know, the necessary intake for life as well. So within the spectrum of eating disorders, it gets very complex. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, what is important is to be clear as one thing that that we've got the slimness idea, which we talked indirectly about. So people think most people want to be more skinny than their natural weight would be. That's a very important aspect. And so what is important, I didn't say that already, most of the binge eaters as well as the people who've got bulimia and also all these other disorders which we cannot totally classify these people diet a lot they show so-called rigid restrictive eating that means that they don't allow themselves eating things they want and they need a lot of people they restrict carbohydrates very strongly and that's a very important reason why then afterwards binges come up that would be more a physiological reason a lot of people don't eat regular. A lot of people, for example, they don't eat breakfast. And so by not eating regularly and by dieting, they put up or put down their ability to regulate stress. Ah exactly. Okay, so it's yeah. regulated to stress.: It's a very a very important aspect. So the, the ability to regulate stress depends on eating regularly and eating what the body needs. And when you say stress, do you mean the
1: physiological dealing with stress?
2: Also, the psychological dealing with stress is dependent on eating regularly. That is fascinating. Most people yeah. don't know that. Yeah, Absolutely. That's one aspect. Diana knows that. And the other aspect is that, well, in our society, when we look on the TV or when we when we listen to radio or something, we hear a lot about how you can lose weight or uh, what you have to do to look good. And uh, when we look uh, on the TV, we see people who look very good always. So this gives us the feeling that we have to look like this too.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I can think about social media of my teen daughter's age group and some of her peer group and the things that they put out of themselves in a hyper-sexualized way and they are young teen Mm -hmm. girls
0: absolutely one of the first things i will tell you that i often do when i'm working with adolescents is we go through their social media feed and we prune things out and i give them things to add And we start to talk about things like, again, this depends on the disorder and this depends on the state of their their nutritional status and their recovery. But we, we look and start to create a critical eye at media. What is it saying? What are we seeing? Is there any kind of diversity in the body types? Not really. Are we seeing that it is okay to have a body that looks different than somebody else's? Not really. Um, And so I think that's one really critical piece that parents can do is, you know, start to open their own eyes to the way media portrays bodies and especially women, but also pay attention to what your kids are seeing or doing. Right, or doing. Exactly. One other piece I was just thinking about when Claudia was talking is as a dietitian one of the things I often hear from from individuals is well my weight is something I can control. You know, I can't control anything else. And there is this almost illusion in general society that we can control our weight. But the reality is very different from that. Our bodies are physiologically finely tuned and they have a comfortable range, depends on the person, of five or 10 kilos either way, where their body wants to be, where it functions the best, where it performs the best, where it thinks the best. And when we start to try and manipulate that, certainly we can do that for a short time but our body has has reactions to prevent it from starving our body has reactions to prevent it from you know becoming malnourished so the more that we push on that the more that we impact and severely damage our body's normal reactions and that's kind of what we see with all of this dieting where somebody loses some weight and then they gain weight but then they gain more back and then they lose some weight and they gain it and they gain more back so this idea this thought that we actually have control over our bodies is also one of the things that I often work with people around that we have to, the same way we can't control our height. You know, I wouldn't go tell somebody, I need you to be 180 centimeters. <laughs> you know, what What would they say? But everybody thinks that it's okay for them to say, well, I need to be 55 kilograms. So just thinking about our body not as something that we can control, but something that we should support and nourish, that's definitely one of the things that I think is really important for all of us adults and adolescents to hear.
1: And how do you both work with your clients, patients, to help them mentally? Because I can imagine it's torturous. I mean, I I know it myself a little bit, but you think about (laughs) what the next meal is when it's coming. And uh, well, I think about food quite a lot, as a lot of people do. But people think about it in different ways. But those who are trying to restrict what they're eating, it must be such a mental load constantly. It's exhausting. And it's exhausting. So how do you, I'd like to know two things. What does it do to the mind? And how do you help people discard that pressure on
2: themselves? I can say how I work with the patients. Uh, I work on two levels. One level would be to work on the symptom, which is a little bit, as you said, but also different. And I also work on the so-called basic themes of the patients. So to lose the pressure, the patients, they have to learn that there are other things important in life than their weight and that they, they have to find out what is important for me in life or who am I, for example. I talked about the problems with the self-esteem and the identity problem. So I work with them a lot on this that they find out what else is important for them for getting happy, except the weight. That's some one thing. Another thing is also they have to have the feeling that they don't need that anymore. So what I work with them on is that they find other possibilities, for example, to deal with conflicts or uh, that they find possibilities to show their their emotions to other people or their needs to other people, that they find aspects which are positive about their person except weight and figure. So that's very important, working on the basis. And as you said, post-traumatic, when we got patients who have traumatized, I have to make trauma therapy so that they can get over these traumas, for example. And then I work also on the symptomatic That means, for example, they make records uh, like they would maybe do in your practice Mm -hmm. too. I make records also to see, okay, how were they emotionally before eating? How were they afterwards? How regular do they eat? And then I work on one hand as far as I'm possible on changes of the eating. The rest does, if I'm lucky, the dietician. I try to also help them to integrate foods, which they usually don't want to eat, for example. That's also part of therapy. So um, it's on, on two levels.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And from your perspective, Diana?
0: From my perspective, again, it sometimes depends on, on the type of disorder and the, the, the stage. Um, in, in certain cases, oh. the goal is really getting the proper amount of nutrition in them any way we can because what we know about eating disorders is the brain is one of the first things to, to really struggle and we can't do a lot of cognitive behavior therapy and other things if the person has a starving brain. So I feel in some ways I'm kind of the first, first line of defense where our goal is sometimes working with the family, sometimes creating a meal plan. For that individual that's balanced, that has proper nutrition, that has sufficient calories, that has all of the nutrients they need to to start to 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 recover physiologically. Um, I think the the other piece that I will often work on with people a, a bit similar to Claudia is once we're kind of eating approaching foods that feel scary or concerning or off limits Uh, because a lot of times eating disorder individuals affected with eating disorders will have a lot of rules they will have a lot of this is okay this is not okay and so we'll kind of work through those rules but backing up because I did forget to say something the one thing that I also will often say to people first is helping them understand That sometimes the reason they feel like they're binging or they're starving or they're obsessed with food is actually because they're hungry. (laughs) So, going back to something Claudia was saying, is oftentimes people have this intense amount of shame around, oh, I'm obsessed with food. All I can do is think about food and I can't stop eating. And then you ask them, what did you have over the last 24 hours? And they're like, two carrots. Well, You know, first of all, our body is really smart. It knows that it it needs nutrition. So it's only going to let you sort of abuse it or cut it off for a certain amount of time before it starts literally obsessing your brain about you need to go and seek food. It creates hormones that make you feel very hungry so that you will seek food. So again, sometimes normalizing the physiological response to hunger (laughs) so that it's not a shameful thing is also a really important piece um, of, of what I do just really kind of explaining blood sugar and how the body works that it does need food on a regular basis otherwise you will not feel good mentally or physically.
1: You're making me think as you speak how important it is to talk about mental self-care and nutrition at a school point of view, really from the late stages of primary onwards. And I really wish that in the systems, the school systems, they would integrate that, that learning about nutrition. Perhaps some schools do. I haven't seen much of it myself. Um, but anyway, I just think it it's, it's crying out for somebody like both of you, really, to go in and talk about the mental state of mind and how to help oneself internally to help your self-esteem because so many of these eating disorders are ultimately related to how we feel about ourselves or things that have happened to us and our coping mechanisms. And from the nutrition point of view, most people, I suppose, teachers in school and the government are expecting us to learn all of these things at home. But if, like you both said earlier, some of these eating disorders stem from a family history of dieting or mentioning these words at home, then it's just going to go down the line forever.
0: Yeah, I think the schools, of course, are in a hard place. There's so many things that they have to teach. But what I would say in terms of nutrition for kids... I feel like as a society, we spend too much time focusing on what they should eat or not eat instead of how to eat, how to listen to their bodies, how to know if they're hungry or full, how to pay attention to what foods give them energy and what foods make them feel kind of sleepy or sluggish. We have such a focus on good foods and bad foods, and this is a red light or green light food instead of... A variety of nutritious foods, um, you know, really listening to their bodies because there's so much diet talk. There's so much good, bad, eat this, don't eat this, lose weight instead of, yeah, food is great. Food is culture. Food is family. Food is celebration. It can be comfort. But we don't we feel scared of it. We feel overwhelmed by it. Um, So if I yeah, if I had my way, we would teach more about how to grow kids into really good, competent eaters, instead of telling them about eat more broccoli and and less M and M's.
1: And of course, we have so many online non-experts giving their two pence worth of what one should eat to get this body, etc. You know, and that's what the adolescents in the main part are just absorbing. But not just them. Um, now, I want to kind of move on to how someone can be treated because it's not just from one source you two work in combo in the sense that it really requires systemic treatment as a family you said Claudia we need the the mental treatment from a psychotherapist or an expert like yourself the nutritional treatment a doctor needs to be on board so how does a family go about sourcing all of these people for their child if it is the child of course it can be adults too mm-hmm
2: well, that's not so easy. For example, in Luxembourg, there is not yet so much expertise. So they really have to go to look for someone. I'm very happy that I have met Diana. Because and I do. <laughs> because uh, now I've got a dietitian who does not look only on uh, dieting, but has got other ideas too. Um, well, it depends a little bit, but it would be good that they try to find a psychotherapist. We have not yet so many who are really specialized on eating disorders. We need more. Actually, I don't know so many colleagues, maybe there are more, but also systemic therapists, they make more family therapy. They are good therapists for... Uh, Eating disorders or cognitive behavior therapists like I am, for example, would also be good therapists for that. They should look for for a therapist and uh, what is very important is that their child feels well and that the family feels well with a therapist. That's not always the case and then therapy does not work out very good. Mm -hmm. Then it would be good to look for a dietitian. To make your experience with them. Some diatricians they are pretty good on that and others have not a lot of experience or maybe not so much knowledge. So they have to find out if got, they've got the feeling that the dietitian can help or not. And then it depends a little bit how, for example, with anorexia, how, how deep the weight is, for example. Uh, it, it's very important to get a doctor into the whole thing Normally, it's Absolutely. a general doctor yeah, to see how the status is of the child and if it's needed that it goes to a hospital or goes to a clinic with a spe- which is specialized on eating disorders. So it but w- there is no clinic in Luxembourg. In Luxembourg, we've no. got no clinic for that. Uh, we've got psychiatric units. Uh, which are good, but as far as I know, they are not specialized. We've got a unit for child uh, psychotherapy in CHHL. Um, They are pretty good therapists, and some of them know something about uh, eating disorders too. Mm -hmm. So
1: there's lots of of aspects of this that um, a family would have to seek out. And of course, all of these statistics we've been talking about, Mm. these are people who end up having the treatment. But I'm sure the numbers are much higher because there's an awful lot of undiagnosed people out there.
0: There's a huge lack of trained professionals in this field, but I think also because of things like diet culture and weight stigma and fat phobia, that there are a lot of people that remain undiagnosed for sure.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually... You mentioned to me in a previous conversation, Diana, that through the period of COVID, where more people have uh, been locked up at home, your practice has ballooned yes. with eating disorder issues. Yeah,
0: Claudia and I were just talking about that actually before we, we came on air. Um, and I think, you know, there's any number of, of reasons that we can speculate on that. One, of course, just being the amount of stress and trauma sort of being heaped upon people right now. But my gut tells me it isn't necessarily all brand new eating disorders that being in close quarters with one's family, finding themselves isolated and cut off from other things that might be useful outlets or social contacts has left people feeling more vulnerable maybe their eating disorder was under control before but is now kind of coming to the surface again i i I think there is unfortunately a significant need for more attention on this topic especially now
2: that's for sure yeah it's often uh, the children or the girls or boys they've got uh, the eating disorder already for a longer time but their parents or the family they don't see that Mm -hmm. They don't see each other often when, when parents work a lot and the children are a lot in school. They don't see themselves so much. So um, this can be held secretly for a long time. And now in COVID, we've got a lot of parents who are in home office. So they see something that has been going on before like that.
0: Exactly. Too.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So really to round up this conversation, are there any other points you would like to to share with our audience?
0: One thing I would say would be um, be alert, you know, notice what's happening. You know, if you're a parent, notice what's happening with your child. It doesn't mean get right into all of their business, of course, because my 15 year old would yell at me about that one. But try to really sort of understand their behaviors with food. How are they acting with friends, social media, all of that. And if you see changes, just put that in the back of your mind and, and stay alert I think the second point that I would say, and we didn't have a lot of time to cover this today, is that eating disorders can affect any person in any body of any gender, any ethnicity, any sexual preference at any time in their life. So we have to also be really thoughtful about the fact that there isn't just one look. It's not a very small, thin adolescent girl. There are there are lots of other things that we want to just be aware of.
1: Absolutely. In fact, we haven't mentioned that. But as you said, we might actually throw out the idea to our listeners that they can send in questions anonymously if they wish. And uh, we can have you both back to, to talk through some of these questions. Because of course, as it portrays itself in a white population might not be the same for people of other ethnicities. And I've seen the statistics on this as well. It does. Very
0: underdiagnosed in other populations, for sure.
1: Which is also interesting. And Claudia, the last word to you.
2: Well, I would uh, say what might be uh, important in my eyes, if someone sees that a girl or a boy has got problems, it makes sense to talk with them about it they will not uh, the patients they will not like it very much it might even lead to quarrels but still um, if someone talks with them about it they see that people care and that they see something they on one hand they don't like it but I often have got uh, clients who've got the feeling okay I have lost so much much weight and I really showed that I've got a problem and no one saw that and that's no good feeling for them. So it makes sense to talk in the family about it, if the parents see that. And it's also important for the peers, like if good friends could talk with their friends about it, that's very important. And also teachers, when they've got a good relation with the student, when the relation is not very good, probably it does not make very much sense. But when there's a good relation between teacher and and uh, the girl or boy or, for example, also trainers, they should talk about it with, their, uh, with the pupils which come to them. So I think that's a very important aspect.
1: That's a wonderful point to end on because I'm thinking now more about the adults who may live alone and then it's the peer group that needs to come into play probably more because so many of us live here in Luxembourg without family members around us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's one thing to have adolescence and try as as a family member to deal with that. But if you're completely isolated on your own, dealing with eating issues and you're crying out to be seen thank you for saying it requires a certain amount of confidence from that friend who may not know what to say just step forward and even if it's a very difficult conversation ultimately you're saying as a psychotherapist it actually fundamentally helps that person
2: it helps that person
1: that's a wonderful wonderful point and I would also like to open up the thought that perhaps Luxembourg needs to put in place a unit perhaps we can get a petition together from our, our listeners to really help solidify support for all sorts of people who want to have advice or expert therapy help dietitian advice as well we need that unit in Luxembourg so so we can think about how to put that into practice as well in future episodes so to my wonderful listeners I would encourage you all to write in send us any of your questions on this topic or indeed your thoughts and hopefully I can have Diana and Claudia back in the studio to help dig into these questions because I know already that many of you have told me how important this topic is to you so I know and I'm very aware of how much it affects so many of us and our daily lives. Meanwhile, continue to enjoy your food in lockdown or hopefully not in lockdown soon when our our wonderful restaurants and cafes can open once more. Thank you so much for listening.